Steve. What's up, dude? A Healthy Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Kraus, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners. Funny talks, but it don't sing and dance and it don't walk. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs, many at each other's expense. Well, we both enjoy the art of the conversation. We both have faces that are made for radio. So the- At least eyebrows for me. <laughs> Double chin for me. <laughs> we get a lot of ones right, but we get a lot of ones wrong. One of the most interesting conversations I've had in a long time. If you pardon me, I'd like to say Wow, I am about to hop on a plane and fly from Boston to DC connecting to Nashville and I think I'll probably spend a good portion of that time thinking about the conversation we just had with Krishna Yeshwan. Super accomplished guy. I mean, makes you feel like <laughs> makes you feel like what have I been doing my yeah. entire life? I have the pleasure of getting to interact with Krishna a lot. He's one of the leading VCs in in our space and works for Google Ventures, which is one of the leading brands in Silicon Valley and yeah. venture now and not only just a venture capitalist and a big thinker, but he's also a practicing doc, which yeah. is just so unique yeah. wearing both those hats. Deeply humble, deeply empathetic, really understands why we do what we do. And yeah, he comes at it from an investor's perspective, but I think you'll see that his life as an entrepreneur, his life as a computer science engineer, his life as a physician, his life as a son, as a family member, it all comes together in the way he sees the world. You know, I think it's very balanced. It's really interesting to think about Krishna assessing an opportunity or assessing a problem with each one of those hats on all at once. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting podcast. It was a great conversation for us because yeah. he both shares lessons to entrepreneurs about how to come and talk to him about opportunities that they want to pitch him on. And then he also is talking to us about amazingly innovative fundamentally transformational companies yeah. in our ecosystem. I don't want to get too grandiose here. I think it's the conversations like this and interacting with guys like Krishna and yourself and just the people we've been having on this podcast are just such a fundamental reason why I do what I do, Yeah. right? Because we're all business people. We're all, in a way, capitalists, right? We want to transform an industry. We want to we want to create businesses. But at the end of the day, when every single one of these conversations we're having on these podcasts, every person is bringing a bigger calling and a bigger mission and a bigger reason for doing what we do. And it's not just creating a photo sharing app or creating a whatever it is. It, there is something just fundamentally bigger and more important in what motivates Krishna, yourself, our other guests, me. I, I just think it's why yeah, working they're, they're, in healthcare. They're, they're really energizing. I mean, think about Krishna. He's dealing with a company that we laughed and made a joke at you, but literally could edit your genome. Yeah. I mean, that is... That's wild yeah. to think about. So instead of getting that gin and tonic on your flight to Nashville, maybe just I'm gonna get energized by, 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 by Krishna. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that was a fun one. I think this will jump up into a lot of people's favorites in terms of the a Healthy Dose podcast. All right, safe flight, buddy. All right, we'll see you soon. All right, we're really pleased to have Krishna Yeshwan join us. Folks will obviously know the famous Dos Equis ad about the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> and I would say that Krishna is the venture capital version of the most interesting man of the I, world. I want the Anish Chopra, George Clooney. Uh, <laughs> you want George that one? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thanks for joining us, Krishna. Thanks for having me. We'd love to start from the beginning. Maybe, like, I grew up in Chicago. Did what was you, your childhood? Yeah. Yeah. Did you decide you wanted to be? about my mom. Yeah, was that's like, where this starts. Yeah. Was were you like a, a polyhead? I mean, did you know you were going to be an entrepreneur, venture capitalist, doctor? Like, what were you like as a kid? So my parents are doctors. Everybody in my family is a doc. I grew up in Chicago. What kind of docs? My dad's an oncologist, community oncologist, and my mom, primary care doc, who also picked up uh, geriatrics. Yeah, I, I suppose from really early on, always really loved their job. Like, you know in a lot of ways because of the entrepreneurial nature of what they did. It often is invisible, but as a community doctor, you're really running a small, medium-sized business. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, you're employing all these people and you have these struggles with your physical office space and growing and where to get capital and how to make relationships with the hospitals work. And so I suppose I saw my parents go through a lot of that and heard my dad talk about a lot of that stuff. 
and just found it really inspirational to see that there's a way to tie business in with what to me was like clinical medicine and really science. So I thought that was really cool. And that also like kind of coupled with just general interest in the computer science industry then, like that was the time when Steve Jobs was at Apple and you know Microsoft was obviously growing and like all these amazing things were happening in the computer science industry. And so I thought that was really interesting. This, so wait, can I pause yeah, you? Please. So what I just heard you say is that your call to medicine or your call to your career was in part entrepreneurial, part science, part technology. Yep. Oftentimes you hear doctors who become doctors because they love the science of it. Yep. And other doctors go because they love the patient care and they love yeah. touching patients and helping people be healthier. Yeah. Where were you on that continuum? probably much more the people part of it. I really like, you know, when I watch my dad, even now my dad still practices in Chicago. He's a great oncologist, but his superpower, his gift is his ability to connect with people and patients. And so I, I very much felt like that seemed like something amazing to do with people is to kind of help them in these really terrible times in their life. I really attached to that part of clinical medicine. You know, I had my clinic just this morning and yesterday and do your patients know that you run healthcare investing at no, GV? No, most of them don't. Most of them are kind of like, and I don't <laughs> Dr. know that. I don't, it's so good to see I you. I don't know that they think of it I've as a positive. I've got a business plan here. Yeah, that I was just telling somebody that's my greatest fear. Yeah. Is it, is it, Someone comes in, you're checking them out, and he pitches you a business plan. Yes, uh, because my inbound is porous through my clinic, really. So like, you can find me through my clinical universe, and it's really inappropriate, unfortunately, because like all of those secretaries and folks are like overburdened with just dealing with patient care stuff, but occasionally there'll be a business plan or something that comes in through like the pager network. But, but yeah, that's totally it, the connectivity to the human side of it. Uh, mm -hmm. And like the medicine, like the technology, but really in service of, of that part of it. I still entered Stanford kind of as a pre-med, and I went to the first kind of introductory course that this guy, Eric Roberts, who's now retired, he gave this talk, and I, I was just completely captured by it. And the, the thought that as an individual, you can sit there and build stuff on a computer and then have it be out in the world and influence things. That, that was very inspiring to me. And, and so very much switched over to being a computer science major there. And, uh, and again, you know, I can't claim to have been at all the best computer scientist at Stanford by a long shot. Uh, you know, I think <laughs> that'd be a high bar. It would be a high bar. You know, I think at some point in the course of being a computer science major, I think my dad looked at my life and was like, this is a problem. <laughs> this is, I don't know where this is going to go for this guy who's like, you know, kind of interested in a lot of different things, like pretty good computer scientist, but not the best of, of the Stanford lot. And, uh, you know, kind of in the midst of that, got interested in these companies. And, you know, I think to this day, my parents probably wouldn't be able to tell you what those companies <laughs> did. And uh, there were ups and downs. And then the first company was really kind of a database, you know, electronic data interchange sort of company. You started these companies? Uh, the first one I started with like six other friends from Stanford. Right out of Stanford? <laughs> yeah. Were you in school? Or we were you still good? in school. Yeah, the concept. Sold it to HP, right? We sold it to HP. The yeah. concept was really initially to do kind of a consulting sort of thing. And then we had these two great Stanford professors who told us, that's stupid. You should do a product. You should make a product. And <laughs> right. we're like, okay, we could do that. And then. Business and then, 101, right? Yeah, exactly. Business 101. I still haven't learned that lesson. You're, 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 getting, still there. <laughs> you're getting there. Service. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the benefits of being at Stanford is you have like hardcore computer science professors who can actually give you viable and good business advice. Yeah, it's, and it's rare. That was tremendous. And it's one of the things I'll come back to. But another hat that I'm starting to wear is working with the medical school around entrepreneurship in and around the MD and PhD programs yeah. and postdoc programs there. And just realizing that there's a huge amount of potential sitting inside of that school, inside of the residency fellowship programs, much of which is kind of confused as how to make use of any of the insights they have. So, so just... Tech entrepreneur, how long were you sort of a classic tech entrepreneur? For probably six years, okay. six, seven years. So that's a good run. I mean, that's, yeah, you know, great. from whatever, you probably did it at 15 to yeah. 21. But, <laughs> but two companies, two exits. Two companies, two yeah. exits. What have you learned from that that you apply both to when you look at healthcare companies, that experience, as well as now being a VC? Well, you know, a lot of what I remember from that time, like those were the times I was in a company and more than anything about tech or healthcare is a lot more of what I feel like I draw from that experience was the memory of being inside of a company. It's such a different experience than being a venture person, I think. Yeah. Um, I always kind of go back to it because one, there's a real sense of uncertainty day to day and a real sense of responsibility to the people 
who work for the company and who've come there because of you and some set of people around you, and a sense of how to establish an esprit de corps that gets you more than just the money that goes into the company. And like, if that doesn't happen inside the company, then there's like kind of no point of having the company. I think I really try to, it's not that I try to retain it, it's like hard to get away from it. It's so scarring in some ways to have gone through that I at least feel like I have a reasonable amount of empathy for what the founders go through. And I, my belief is that their job is infinitely harder than our jobs as kind wow. of venture folks. 200% on that. Yeah, at least 200% yeah. harder. And uh, even when things are going well, it's fundamentally hard and you're largely alone. You know, it's hard, even if you have a co-founder, there's things that come up as a founder and CEO that's hard to talk to your board about. It's hard to talk to your employees about. It's hard to talk to your friends and spouse about. And it's like, it's actually a pretty lonely position despite you know being surrounded by people all the time. And so I really remember that part of it and try to at least remember that when we're you know being critical of something that's happening in a company or changing something in a company or having you know going from one thing to another just remembering how even at the best of times it can be quite overwhelming for a CEO. Anyway, like there's that array of things. I think there's a lot of stuff around well just how an engineering team runs. The way engineering teams ran back then is different, different than, than it, it is, is now yeah, yeah. and I'm sure it'll be different tomorrow than it is today. Yeah. Some of that stuff comes back and and it is helpful, I think, from the venture perspective, because sometimes when you're seeing something happen at the board meeting, you're kind of realizing that actually that must mean that there's something way deep inside of like that engineering team that's probably not fully being communicated. And then I do a lot of trying to connect with the team outside of the board meeting. Yeah. Uh, I really like that. And even if it's just to help them as they're kind of thinking through the day-to-day -day of how they manage that very small or sub part of the company, I miss that quite a bit. Like that's the thing I miss most in this role. As, as so I don't want to pry in your personal finances, yeah. but were these exits like life-changing or yeah. did you? Yeah, they, they were. were. Yeah. Wow. Um, the first one was, was life-changing. I mean, the second one was much larger. And for me, at least the way I ended up here was, uh, you know, I was working at Symantec and my dad got diagnosed with a heart condition, like not a heart attack. He was like doing a stress test and they're like, oh, you need to like, you know, go get a bypass. And I I went to the hospital with him and I saw him after the procedure and I kind of came away thinking this whole thing is stupid. Like the whole way this happened is just backwards and in a lot of ways the term that came to mind back then was it's just medieval. Like we opened this, this entire healthcare. Person, healthcare. The whole thing was would just felt flawed even as somebody kind of surrounded by people who could interpret all of it for me and could really understand it and understood why things were happening a certain way. For me, I kind of looked at the whole thing and felt like this is not the way things should be happening in the 21st century. And the surgical procedure or just yeah, the entire journey that, that the, the whole thing, the way that it was found, uh, which I'm thankful for because it could have been found yeah, in a right. much more deleterious way. But but then, you know, how it was intervened upon again, not that anything happened wrong. That was all standard of care, but pretty brutal procedure to yeah. fix something that's relatively simple. Just the way that care is fractured in a hospital, especially when you're perceiving it from the patient's perspective. You know, stupid stuff that, I remember you, you had shoulder surgery yeah. at some point. Yeah, but like, yeah. You're sitting in the hospital bed and you remember like all these beeps and like things, the stuff like noise that's happening that um, is kind of surprising how we deal with it. You know, how we think about patients recovering from these procedures. Yeah, we were just talking about, I mean, it just I makes mean, no sense. I mean, it's all crazy. It's all crazy and it's all fundamentally, and the other piece of it I think is that it's not that any one person is trying to make it bad, right? So was the doctor in you seeing that? Was the computer scientist and engineer seeing that? Was the entrepreneur seeing that? Or was the investor? Or was it literally it was like, all four hats on like, at once? It was being a son, seeing you know, <laughs> oh, their dad kind yeah. of struggle with all of that. And hey, he, did, he did fine. He's, like, yeah. he's totally fine after it. But just seeing the amount of suffering for somebody who you care about yeah. go through that, I think that was fundamentally upsetting. Yeah. And when I think about venture investing now, when I think about clinical medicine now, again, like to your earlier question, like it is very much that human experience that I find infinitely motivating. Yeah. Could care less whether we make money, lose money, whether the companies do well or not. I mean, obviously I do care for the sake of Google, but what's motivating me here is much more the sense that there's people day in and day out in my own institution who are suffering for reasons that are probably fixable. And we all live in this very privileged world. I certainly feel incredibly privileged to have the resources of Google. Yeah. And it's not the money, it's the people who are in that team. Like, 
interested in impacting the system in some way. Every one of them has a similar experience. Somebody around them has gone through it, maybe they've gone through it. And then on top of that, we have this capital and we have this brand, we have, this, have all this stuff. And I feel like we're in a moment where, and I, you know, you guys at Bessemer, you at Oxygen, like we have these resources to really have an impact on some of the stuff that at its end, if it's done well, it will have an impact on that end experience. And theoretically, by nature, that should mean that all these companies make money and have an impact. Can can you shed some light? I mean, we have Google and we have Alphabet and we have Sidewalk Labs, but for GV in particular, you hear about just the endless cash resources that an organization like Google has. You also hear about the endless entrepreneurship and innovation that's happening inside of Google or inside of, I guess, Alphabet and Sidewalk Labs a little bit. What's the mandate at GV? Like, how do you guys at Google Ventures wake up in the morning and be like, we can actually material impact what's yeah. going on at Google or at Alphabet? So Shed some light on what that culture is so like. So inside of GV, the interface with Google is actually really simple insofar as they get to judge us on our return on investment. That's how we're judged. What I like about that is it simplifies the interaction with Google. So like, we try really hard not to think about what is or isn't strategic to Google because I don't know what is or isn't strategic to Google. I've been at Google for a while and what seemed like it would be strategic years ago isn't anymore <laughs> or, or what seemed like it would be irrelevant for Google is you know, very relevant for them today. Mm-hmm. So in that sort of world, in that sort of environment, I think the only thing to do is take a step back, rely on what we know to be true from a technical, is in the healthcare world from a clinical perspective and try and focus on these sorts of things that seem like over time they're going to be increasingly important, impactful, and then organize our resources around that. Because that's how I know, at least historically, if you do that and do that with enough patience and with enough you know, good people and quality around it, that should make money. And I think at least historically, if I look back at our GV funds, and for, for context, each year we set up a new fund okay. uh, into which formerly Google and Alphabet puts all the money. And then we invest out of that very much like a traditional venture fund. We're looking for companies that will have some sort of... I don't know if you can answer this, but it's a limited partner, the corporation. It's not individuals, right? It's just... It's Google. Their treasury function. Yeah, exactly. Got it. How do you think, and this is one VC asking another, but how, how do you think about what makes Google different as a venture fund in your mind? You know, I haven't worked in another venture fund, so to some degree, I don't know. But looking at it, at face value and kind of inferring some of the things. The things that come to mind, well, one, we do live inside of Google still. We have a separate fund, but like I have a Google badge. I like operate inside of this gigantic entity. And I'd say we're very influenced, especially by early Google culture. So a lot of the people who are part of Google Ventures have been around Google for some period of time. That's really an engineering-oriented culture. It's driven by the technology Mm -hmm. in some sense that great movements in technology will have dramatic impact in society and monetarily. To me, at least, that's part of why we do so much in healthcare. Is in healthcare, as you're seeing, like we actually see material shifts in technology, which Mm -hmm. you don't see as often in in the tech world. uh, Actually, like we're seeing a lot more. Like you uh, think they're fundamentally bigger game-changing shifts happening in healthcare right now. I think so. I think so. I'm pretty sold on that, actually. Uh, well, just because the industry was such a laggard? I'm thinking now more on the biotech yeah, side. Yeah, okay. he's, he's investing in gene editing companies yeah. that are you yeah, know, fundamentally like, changing the way. Somebody should win a Nobel Prize around that. Like, right. And we could rattle off a list of amazing, amazing like, Trevor, things. Trevor, if we could go in and edit a gene yeah. that affects your brain, I mean, think about what that <laughs> would hear do. some music. Or... <laughs> My wife would be so thankful. My wife would be so thankful. She would give the Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think that's the most exciting thing yeah. happening in the technology slash science world now is like, I think a lot of that stuff is happening in and around biology or has some read on biology. It was surprising to me that Google Ventures was willing and interested to invest in those sorts of spaces. A lot of people externally would look at Google as a search engine. I think internally Google looks at itself much more as a platform around which you can bring these novel technologies to bear on society. And, And whether it's a product or some other sort of way that that is realized, I read into that being what Google's really about. And I think that's kind of what Google Ventures is ultimately about. And I think there's other venture funds that are like that, but I think a lot of funds are much more, much more investment bank slash financial mm-hmm. around how they look at things. The funds that we tend to get along with really well tend to have a little bit more of that framework of the technology, the product, you know, some sort of impact on the world. And backtrack from that, if you really realize how gene editing gets realized in the world, there will be some massive 
reward at the other end of it. I agree with and that. And that will be aligned with having some sort of impact in the world. I believe that's what it's about. We're judged by the degree to which we align that sort of transformative impact with profit. Uh, and I think once you have those two things, the sense that you're doing something aspirational and you're going to do it in some way that's formatted in a for-profit entity, that immediately attracts a certain type of person. And it's not necessarily a person who's all about the money. It's a person who's fundamentally all about the impact, but realizes to do it in a sustainable way, you need to have the profit. I want to ask one more question about Google Ventures. It's interesting that you talk about fundamental transformational leaps in healthcare, but healthcare has also been, and healthcare has many sub-economies, but it's a pretty slow-moving industry yep. because of regulatory reasons, totally. et cetera. You were at Google Ventures pretty early, mm-hmm. yeah, and right these are fundamentally early. people who are in the Silicon Valley tech world. Like, was it hard convincing them to take a bite of healthcare? It's not something that they really knew. I mean, in fact, Google has not been that successful as a corporation in healthcare, at least penetrating the veil. Yeah. Maybe that's not fair, but... That's the perception, I would say. So this goes back to like Bill Maris and Rich Miner, who are like, you know, right there at the beginning. Right. I'd give Bill a lot of credit right at the beginning. You know, he's somebody who actually did come from a healthcare investing background at Investor AB. And I remember bringing, Adam Ebb was our first investment with Tillman and Eric and kind of that crew of folks and Polaris and SV Life Sciences. And I remember bringing them forward and we had debate. This is a classic biotech company. Yeah, it's a biotech. Yeah, this is a antibody development platform. And we did have some debate internally, but Bill was fundamentally all about it. And from that moment till he left, was very much supportive of even our craziest life sciences concepts in, in a way that was really surprising to me, frankly. Like, I didn't go in with the expectation that we'd end up doing a lot of life sciences. You know, it's probably you know, north of 25%, getting to maybe a third of our dollars at work uh, in any given fund. I think really, I mean, what I've seen at GV is we spent so much, we invested so much of our money into healthcare, we brought along the rest of the team in that dynamic and exposed folks. So one thing I should mention is you asked earlier the question, what's differentiating about GV? One thing I think is that we take a particular cultural focus to how we're doing venture investing. And then there's another component where I think in our own heads, you know, we very much believe the capital is a commodity. Everybody has capital in today's world. There's lots of venture funds in tech in the Bay Area. Like capital is not the scarce resource. So we put together this array of teams that directly help the companies that we work with. And these are people who work for Google Ventures, not for Google, but they are part of our team. So we have a design team, an engineering team, a recruiting team, a marketing team, a partnerships team, all of whom work directly with the companies that we invest in. And that's the vast bulk of our team. There's only a handful of investors. Most of the people are operational. And what I've found over the years is, you know, those people have worked with a lot of healthcare companies at this point. So they've worked with therapeutics companies, they've worked with diagnostics, med tech, payer, provider, health IT companies. They've kind of worked across the spectrum. And they actually now come to the table with a reasonable amount of experience and expertise in the space. So, you know, if there's anything that I'm most proud of, you know, kind of in this role at Google over the, all these years, it's, it's the ability to take that group of people you know, people who are experts in machine learning and have built huge parts of Google's ad network. And apply it to healthcare. The design team. Like, you know, there's people from the design team who've flown around the country and sat in community oncology offices, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And like, if there's one thing that I can imagine really kind of moving the space forward, it's like bringing that sort of skill set into the hidden parts of healthcare. I think the parts that I find most compelling are you know where technology and people like the folks on the design team, engineering, like all of those, you know, how you build a brand, all of those people who have lived in the Google world and other startups in the tech world are now very deeply tied into companies that are very deep in the healthcare space. And that's both in the biopharma side as well as in the payer provider side. And it's not like a one-off, I'm gonna come by and, and have a quick conversation. Like they're embedded in some of those companies in ways that I think change the DNA of how those companies operate. I'm obviously more of a healthcare IT guy than a biotech guy, but one medical, Flatiron, Aspire, Quartet. I mean, you have a portfolio that it would... That's our patient thing in there. Yeah, patient You guys have done a great job of interviewing all of our portfolio companies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's probably more a statement of your portfolio companies, but, you know, Collective Health. I mean, you just have Grail. You've got an unbelievable portfolio. How much of that is Google's brand versus the services versus you're obviously an incredibly well-regarded investor. And I, I, people are always talk about 
the value you bring, but what gets you into all of those deals? It's just a remarkable portfolio. And some of these are high profile and yet to be seen. A lot of them are high profile and are showing real, real success. There's a difference between the two. I appreciate you saying that and seeing that. I mean, I think we're getting more active in healthcare and you'll see us in more places, I think, moving forward. You know, I think all of these areas, and I could go through each one of them, kind of comes from a process that we have internally where we think about, well, where are the things that should be happening in this space? And we'll spend sometimes, you know, a couple of years kind of thinking about that and proactively looking for, can we start a company? Can we do something here? And it's almost always the case that as we go through that process, we find somebody infinitely smarter than us who can show us why our initial thesis was fundamentally naive and then who's actually doing the thing in a much better way. And like, I could think of the thesis that we developed early on and then the process that we went through and then realizing, okay, like here's somebody who's already doing that. Let's mm-hmm. like see if we can participate and be helpful. Yep. I think we've been really lucky to be part of those companies. Let's go in a maybe slightly darker direction for a second, right. which is you're obviously betting on big, big ideas. And some of the big ideas that we see in healthcare and outside of healthcare are running up against fundamentally really ethical and integrity-based issues with their CEOs and their leaders. Hmm. Theranos being one, Zenefits being another, Nant Health, Nant Health. is in the news yep. right now. Uber's had a bad 2017. We know you're an investor, so you can choose to comment on that or not. But just <laughs> as a collaborator with great CEOs, how often does a great CEO who has just a moonshot idea, how often is that brain wired to push the boundaries on almost everything? Right? If they're willing to push the boundaries on the concept of their idea, how often do they overstep that fine line? Or is it the pressures that they put on themselves as a result of the thing that they've created that they, they have to almost sustain that hype and growth? I think it's a perfect question for like the day and age. We're seeing this time and again in healthcare yeah. and in tech. But I, I would really call this out. I think what we're really seeing is exceptions. You know, I would identify at least Theranos and Nant as two that in the past at least we've been pretty proactive as identifying as these are unusual. Theranos in particular, I, you know, I remember, hate to bring it up, but like, you know, there was a moment where Bill, when he was at GV, he went to the Wall Street Journal conference and just identified Theranos as being a problem, a, a flawed sort of approach to building a company before all of the stuff came out. And we took a lot of flack for that because it looked like Bill was kind of attacking, you know, an entrepreneur and like, but the reason he did that was to kind of protect the integrity of, of the space, yeah. of diagnostics as a, as a universe where we spend a lot of media time and attention talking about those companies, as we should. But there's a ton of other people who are actually putting really good hard work into building ultra high quality companies that would never, that are pushing the line as to you know, how a team can operate, but are not pushing the line in terms of how you run a company properly, how you get a group of people to work together to achieve amazing things and actually to, you know, to push the regulations in the right sort of way. So for every example of a Nant or a Theranos, there's a ton of examples of companies that you know we see and we applaud, but don't get nearly the time and attention because they're not, uh, I mean, it's not as interesting for New York Times yeah. to publish stories about this. This is to both of you guys. When you're looking at a deal, and Steve, you and I have talked many times about the weight you put on the CEO that yeah. you're backing. When you guys look at a deal and you can look at the spreadsheets and the financial models and you can look at the customer traction, but how do you assess that CEO's ability to drive and push and create and disrupt to the perfect level without overstepping it's, it? I mean, Christian, I'd be interested in what you think, but it's, um, it's the right question. It's a really hard question because it's a very fine line. I mean, you know, my sister's an entrepreneur. I work all the time with entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, they are doing the impossible with limited resources, and so they always have to be selling ahead of their skis. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, Trevor, yeah, you know yeah, that, yeah. right? That's by definition what you do every day yeah. in the face of people saying no. And in truth, you know, some of the best entrepreneurs have a little bit of crazy in them, right? Because you kind of have to. So what is that fine line, I think, is the question mark. And it's really hard when it's a young entrepreneur, right? Because there's no necessary reference check of people who've worked with them in the past. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't back them. It's just there's no proof of them having worked in a setting before. So. Is it gut instinct for you I guys? Do you like look someone in the eye? I mean, and you're you like, can ask. Oh. I sometimes, for me, it's asking questions, and not the first question. It's asking the follow-up question and seeing yeah. whether they, if they give you a sort of yeah, head-shaking answer, but then you sort of pierce behind the veil. And 
realizes that they were misleading to you. Right. You know, that there's sort of those Great question. those things that you can test in a meeting, but it's it's tough. Yeah, I, I don't have fundamentally a better answer than gut. And you know, there's some people who seem to like attract great people and there's some people who like, you know, always seem to end up in like these weird relationships. You know, for me at least, there's definitely some disqualifying sort of components to relationships where it's like as Steve was saying, there's something where somebody's claiming something and then you poke and you're like, actually, that was just false. That was a lie. Yeah, it was a lie. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's disqualifying. Yes, <laughs> right? right. Might be, we could still have a relationship, but like it'd be really hard to put Google's money behind that because there's just nothing that's worth it. There's so, no upside that's so worth it. So on a continuum from spin to hyperbole to white lie to outright lie, you guys will take a bit of spin and hyperbole. Absolutely. Have to. You right. have to, by definition. White lies, clearly lies that disqualify, but like- I was gonna ask Krishna about some lessons that he could share with some of the entrepreneurs who listen to our podcast, but I think one of the things, you know, it's a hard dynamic because you're trying to raise money from venture capitalists who have the money, and you're by definition ahead of your skis, and if you're young especially, you've gotta prove that you also have gravitas, totally. those words, right? But I think it's okay sometimes, my thing to entrepreneurs is don't tell the white lie. Just say, I don't know. You know, I think right. oftentimes saying I don't know is refreshing, actually. Because in truth, we don't expect the entrepreneurs that pitch us to know everything. It's impossible. They're doing things that are undefined, right? It's, it's to some degree how you know you've reached ground truth with that person. Right. Is like you're pushing, they're pushing you. And then at some point it's like, yeah, like maybe I lose something by saying I don't know. Or let me look into it. Right. Right, exactly. But like that's the answer. And if you as a venture person can't see that, then this isn't going to work. I think white lies, I think. That's a very slippery slope, right? Yeah. Between yeah. hyperbole, you can be hyperbolistic and sell ahead of your yeah. skis and acknowledge it, which is fine. We expect that, but don't get into the white lies. Just it, say, it, I, don't I know. think having been an entrepreneur that's actually pitched both of you on different <laughs> things and with varying degrees of success and definitely some failure, and I think both of you would say this, and it would be interesting to share with entrepreneurs, is that I think neither one of you wants an entrepreneur who knows everything, because then what value can you bring? You want to actually be a partner to them and help them think through problems. And if they can't, if they're not willing to admit that they don't know something, it makes it less intellectually interesting for you guys. Yeah, I mean, by definition, I would go back to what they're doing. And if you listen to Krishna and what he wants to invest in, it's industry changing, world changing solutions. It hasn't been done before by definition, therefore. And so you can't know everything, (laughs) right? You're like really looking for who are people who you can solve problems with, and it's not going to be possible to know the answer to all those things, right. but it's really, it's really more of a dynamic than a, is this the right answer or wrong answer? And that, to me, that's much more of a relationship. You come from two different worlds that are really struggling with gender diversity right now. You, yeah. You've spent a lot of time in the tech world. I think it's widely known that there is a real gender issue yeah. in technology. There's as bad a gender issue in healthcare right now. On healthcare in particular, we talk a lot about the woman in the family being a major, major driver of healthcare decisions in many situations, probably disproportionate to males that they influence more healthcare decisions. Why is the healthcare industry, in your opinion, so poor in female leadership, female CEOs, female boards, female investors? Man, you ask such good questions. I'm gonna ask you the same same question because you're you're out there interviewing and kind of recruiting all these folks. You know, I had this experience when I was training with this surgical group at MGH, and at some point got into about 50% females, 50% men. It was like kind of this amazing achievement. And the chief of the department, you know, he got an award for kind of, you know, having a progressive department or something like that. And they asked him how he did it. And what he said I found was really uh, insightful, which is he wasn't proactively trying to, you know, help women or hurt women or like he was just trying to set up a playing field where people could advance based on what they wanted to do and what they were interested in. And that did take him to places where he was proactively looking for ways to help people with childcare, help people with hours. But the intent was not necessarily, you know, for women, it was purely to kind of help people figure out how to manage their lives in a complex environment like a surgical group. And, you know, I don't think we do nearly enough of that as we think about companies. There's a lot of unspoken and invisible things that happen in the process of starting companies, raising money, building companies that happen in times and ways and apply pressures to people that are inconsistent with all the other stuff that happens in life. And I think that's structural. And the only way we get to talk about it and really do something about it is by putting a big spotlight on it. We went through a process internal to Google Ventures where we realized we just don't have any 
we don't have enough females kind of working on our team. And I think we instituted for a while a policy where we needed to interview 60 women for every one man who we were going to put into a position. That, you know, I think that sort of process helped, but I don't have like the silver bullet here. I'm curious how you think of it since you're kind of on the front line. So I don't think it is a priority issue, honestly, in many of the conversations that I have. You don't hear, you don't hear that level of discipline. You hear board members and investors in the nonprofit work we do actually for large health systems, it is a priority and it's mandated. And actually for the public company, the public companies that we work with, it is mandated. That's we right. need to see diversity. For the private companies, which, you know, funded largely by white men yeah. and IRR is the mandate, I don't think they care. They're not making decisions and directing the hiring of senior leadership that says, Hiring a woman or having a woman on our board is going to drive substantially better return on investment, which is how these boards are compensated. I am optimistic that over the next 10 years, we will start to see a fundamental shift. Uh, the reason why is because I think about back to when I was a child and the still kind of lingering gender bias and discrimination that even for me when I was growing up and being educated in the 70s and 80s, it was still there. I mean, it wasn't there like it was in the 50s and it wasn't there like it was in the 20s, and in the, but it was still there, right? And you could still see there was bias with athletics, there was bias with oftentimes student government. There was, and so I think that's fundamentally changed. And so one of the things about CEOs is that, you know, you question whether leadership is innate or learned. And I think that the educational system the youth sports, I think, at universities, I think graduate school programs are now much, much more equally focused on developing leadership and developing yeah. these types of really important skills that you take to them become a CEO of a company. A CEO is different than a head of sales, is different than a CTO. I think it's a really good systems point. I mean, my class at Yale was the first class that had more women graduate than men, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's... That's 1999. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a long way from you know, the equal rights movement, right, to 25 yeah. plus years. So I wanna cover two big topics. I actually think you have a, Krishna, really interesting perspective in that at GV you do both healthcare IT and services as well as biotech. There's a new trend now of software eating biology. You know, this idea that right. tech yeah. can actually lead to better drug development. And I'm just curious, as, as you sit at that intersection, Talk a little bit about this theme of software eating biology, how you think about it, and what it holds for the future. I think the way I see it actually work in practice is much more of a marriage and much more of like an integration. The company that I feel like I've seen this in just hitting it completely out of the park is Flatiron. Mm -hmm. Not exactly down the line of uh, therapy. Yeah, they're not company, doing drug development. But, but, and, right. and we can get to that. But Flatiron, oncology IT company, if you look inside of the company, all the way to the guts of how the scrum teams work. It's like there's a designer, there's an engineer, usually somebody who's you know from a Facebook, from a Google. You have a clinician, usually an oncologist or a nurse, and you, ha you have like kind of this unusual pairing of people who are in the clinical world and people who are in the tech world. And I'd say like one large thesis we have, one overarching kind of macro thesis is that there's a tremendous amount of value to be gained across every one of the major healthcare verticals by bringing high quality engineering skill sets into contact with high quality domain expertise from those areas. But the problem is it's not sufficient to just put those two people at the same table. We've tried that, we've done that, we've run like little events and dinners and we put those people together and they don't really know what to talk about. Uh, <laughs> and so you kind of need like a catalyst in there to kind of enable you know, some real gelling. And there's not a lot of people who do that, but the second you can kind of get that working, the whole thing starts to unlock it. And you can really then see how like, you know, is it software eating biology or software eating healthcare more broadly, or is it software doing the same damn thing software has done for every other industry, just finally kind of unlocking these things in healthcare? Like to me, that's what's happening. And you know, when you look at something like drug development, you know, to some degree, you know, I, I would argue that that's the biggest lever we have in healthcare, you mm -hmm. know? And related to that is we obviously have just brute force found therapeutics, but, you know, we're entering an area where you can actually fundamentally diagnose a disease. And if you can fundamentally diagnose a disease, then you can theoretically cure it. And we're increasingly having a palette of modalities that can theoretically cure diseases. 
And you know, you look at things like CRISPR and the impact that IT has in that, or the possibility of a software-oriented approach to therapeutics. I think that's present. I believe that at least possible. We're, we're probably at some height of the hype cycle in it, but you know, we'll go through some trough and then out the other end. That will happen in our lifetime, I believe. And you kind of look across other areas like modified RNA, and you look at cell-based therapies, and you, and the utility of IT as a tool initially and then as a strategic advantage in each of those areas, I think is just, yeah. I mean, I think that is happening, but I don't think it's going to be some people in a Y Combinator cohort out of Stanford kind of working on some stuff in their dorm room that, that just kind of eats Pfizer or something like that. I don't, I just, yeah. I don't, I don't no, I mean, I, I, I sort of say this, I mean, we're sitting here in Cambridge in the heart of Kendall Square where, yep. you know, basically every major drug company is. And yep. in truth, I think I love how you guys are bringing together technology and clinical. I mean, you know, sometimes I want to say to folks in Silicon Valley, like there are amazing computational scientists in every single one of these, Absolutely. in every single one of these. I mean, in many ways, these biotech companies have been really advanced yes. in terms of their use of state-of-art technologies to develop drugs, right? So yeah. um, it's, it's an interesting space. I might even go one step around that, yeah. which is like you kind of think of how drug development happens currently. And there is this issue that like, in order to plug into a large pharma company, you ultimately need to fit a certain model. In particular, as an example, it's like an animal model for some disease that's like 30 years old. And it's like, is that really representative or not of the disease of process? the current population yeah. today. Absolutely. So, okay, at the same time, this pharma company has been using this model forever, and that's what they're used to, and that's what they're going to use to determine whether to transact or not with a company. It's kind of hard to unlock... I think the true opportunity in the therapeutics realm until we understand and believe that our models are flawed for understanding these diseases. So what about, what about so clinical trials though? Because part of, part of, yeah. I mean, part of the, what's gonna have to change there is the entire process of going through all the various for the sure. hundreds of millions of dollars in 10 years and all the way through the clinical trial. That entire process is gonna have to change for Absolutely. this new class of I, I couldn't, couldn't right? agree more. And, and I think, you know, we're seeing those opportunities today. I think the clinical trial universe will change before the approach for developing the drugs because it's more connected to the digital health and kind of EMR. Like there's more stuff that we can kind of put our hands around there. Whereas in the biology world, it's like, okay, like does this model, does this simulation, does this cell, does this plating of IPS cells, like does that represent ALS or not versus you know, can I find an extreme variant of ALS, both protective and exposed, that helps me delineate the biology more clearly? Like, we're going to be able to do that today, right? That's going to happen. And we're going to be able to recruit for trials in a more efficient way, and we'll be able to run the trials in more efficient ways. And there's billions of dollars sitting around do, that. Do you think then that Silicon Valley is, I mean, we're sitting here at the hub of drug development again. Do you think Silicon Valley is going to become I, a place where drug development actually is? You know, the next Genentech, I guess Genentech was built there. Yeah, I was going to say You know, the next Genzyme, Biogen, yeah, Vertex, you know, like Vertex, Cell Gene is built in Silicon Valley? It would be surprising to me if we don't see more of it in Silicon Valley because there's so much money floating around. I mean, you look at UCSF General, which is now Zuckerberg General. You kind of look at the amount of money floating around the Bay Area and you know, it's like by accident they could develop some of these things. So Plus, a lot of these folks actually who have made a lot of money in tech actually view healthcare as a way to get back to the world. But, you know, at the same time, like, you know, you kind of look at it, it's like the amount of capital, the willing to take massive risk, the dollar amounts that some of the billionaires there can just put to work without really ever thinking about it. I mean, that will result in something. Yeah. Even if it's easy to look at some of it and ridicule it today, that's how all great innovation starts, right? It all looks like a toy. It all looks fundamentally uh, like it's not going to get there until suddenly one of them does, and then everybody like piles in behind that. I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs ask you for lessons. What advice do you give them if they're going to go pitch Krishna Yeshwan at Google <laughs> Ventures or yeah. Steve Krauss at Bessemer? Or... I think it goes back to the earlier conversation, which is like if you're in a place where you're now pitching, things are probably going wrong. <laughs> like, especially as a first introduction, it's probably much more of a, hey, like, how do you look at where the world's going? You know, now we could have a conversation around, okay, Trump has all this stuff that's coming out. This is an incredibly volatile time. Okay, that's a great conversation. Nobody knows the answer. Let's just start with that assumption. How do you think through from here to there? And like, you know, if I can engage in a conversation with somebody on that, which is less about their company and more about, let's just first agree what we think about the environment and where the certainty and uncertainty is. And then from that, okay, like, 
you know, maybe we just disagree on the macro of where things are going. And then it'll make it really hard to have a conversation around why this company or that company, you know, makes sense. So I, I usually like to start with, okay, like, where do you think the world's going? And then I really love the story of who you are. I often ask people to start with where you're born and just go from there to here, because I find like, you know, macro picture, you know, who somebody is, what are the successes and failures in their lives? And then after all of that, then I'm interested in the company. Interesting. Because the company itself is like, I believe it to be at its best a reflection of all of that stuff. And when it's like, okay, like all this stuff, and then the company is something totally not worthy of all the stuff that that person's done or kind of where the world's going, then it's kind of like, well, then I can push them on that or they can push me on something. And then, you know, whether we invest in that company or not, that's now a person who I know and feel like I can understand. And whether it's now or in the future or like their next company, like I'm still interested because I think those are the pieces that we'll attach to. We published the anti-portfolio at Bessemer. Yeah, what's I your, see it in your bathroom. <laughs> what, what's, your, what's your greatest miss? Adios. Adios. Yeah, because I, I remember meeting with David Shenkine and knowing he was one of those people who's like, this guy's just special. And he's somebody I can, like in that first meeting, it was just obvious he's a legend already. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who has fundamentally the best interests of patients and the system at the core of why he's doing it, great people behind him. It was just so clear to me that like, this is the sort of person we wanna be in business with. And just at the time, we were very early and we weren't sure how to invest in therapeutics yet. And we're still learning, frankly, like how to do therapeutics and we're not experts yet, but we like working with people who, who know it. But I think at that time, it was probably the therapeutics realm was a little too intimidating for us. And if I were to go back, that'd be probably the one that I feel like, you know, I'd kick myself. And you find that situation, you find the entrepreneur, you find the opportunity, you find the team. And then it's funny, you and Annie Lamont are yeah. very similar in that valuation doesn't become a deterrent for you, right? I think that you're obviously both great investors, but I think both of you look at the same way, which is if this market opportunity is big enough and the team and the CEO is right and small micro negotiations yeah, on it. valuation. Is that how you look at it? I mean, to some degree, I don't want entrepreneurs out there to feel like, yeah, we'll, we'll just take yeah. whatever Chris price. Is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, I'd say it's probably a little contextual. So like, you know, if it's a company where we can see, well, look, there's nobody else, like there's occasion, and I can think of a couple examples where it's like, nobody else is stepping up to lead this round, right? I know that, entrepreneur knows that. And now we have to be really careful that we all don't end up upside down on it. Then I'm going to do the diligence and like figure out what the market valuation should be. And we'll have our own bottoms up approach to doing it. And we will do that diligence and we'll just pass if yeah. it doesn't make sense because it's going to be a close call as to how it works. Yeah. But that's not our normal investment, right? Most of the investments we're looking at, you know, are in some way aspirational, in some way, if they work somewhat, you know, transformative to the market, yeah. uh, you know, we're going after companies that could be very valuable in any number of scenarios. And yeah, it's to your point, like if you're kind of at that point and you believe that, then, you know, some of the incremental stuff around valuation may not be critical to the deal. At the same time, I think we're now at a point where we really do believe that we can add something to the company. Yeah, right. I mean, you've been a VC now for eight years, almost yeah. still a practicing doc, but yeah. if you were to tell young Krishna Yeshwant, I guess you'd be 30 <laughs> at that time, yeah. like, here's what you should do to be a really great VC. What would that advice be? Just co-invest in everything you're doing. Just, just, follow, just follow Steve uh, Krause. Right. I want the Steve yeah, Krause index right. fund. I think that's my uh, I think advice. that's uh, step, <laughs> step number one. It would be to have, it's like when something's working, just keep going with it, Yeah. right? I think the winners- Don't be afraid that, to double down. Yeah, I think the winners we've had, like I would just keep going. And like, you know, I remember, there's a famous venture capitalist who once told us that he made more money on the public side. You know, kind of he invested early, you know, seed investing, and then they made more money by holding on to their stocks, or he did at least after they distributed on the public side than all of the previous value that would have been created before that. Wow. I often think back to that because like, you know, you put so much time and effort identifying the company, identifying the people, and then you see them work together and you believe it and you see it. Right. And you know, like, why get out of that if you can help it? Totally agree with that. We, we see that too. I mean, we do a couple deals a year, right? And yeah. so once you got something that's cooking, so hold on and to that. you love working that team. I mean, but early on in your career, you feel like you want that outside validation, right? You Absolutely. know, our job is not nearly as lonely as entrepreneurs, but like, you know, you want that great fun to come in and validate your investment. But Absolutely. in truth, it, I totally agree with you. Yep. You know, yeah, it's all about your winners. My final question is, 
we're back here five years from now talking to you, what's the innovation that we don't know about right now that will have changed the world in your mind? Oh, wow. Or that you think of? most people don't know about right now. We're really care. sticking it to you today. Yeah, yes. I love it. <laughs> you know, I, I actually I just think... want to fund this company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so the thing that I'd really love to see, and I just haven't yet, so I don't, I don't know this thing, but like, I would like to think that in five years, we'll figure it out something in the EMR space to make the process just less painful. So I'll share this hypothesis, which is like, and there's many flaws to this analogy, but like we all use Macs and PCs and, and whatnot, but like we actually spend almost all our time in a browser. Right. And so I kind of wonder whether like, okay, so all these hospitals have put huge amounts of money into putting Epic into them. And like we often think of Epic as being the interface for the clinician, but actually Epic is like all the other interstitial stuff that happens in the hospital. It's like how the phlebotomist knows which room to go to to draw the blood and like it knows it's like how the laboratory, you know, sends stuff back and how pathology does things and radio. It's like infused in so many parts of the system. So I wonder if there's an analogy where it's, well, maybe Epic is really like the operating system and it's running like the disk driver and it's making sure that the internet connectivity is up. And we can actually have a more freeform approach to what the interface on top of that mm -hmm. looks like to all the different people that might interface with it. And, and so which, the real, the screen that we interact most with is the overlay on top of Epic. And I guarantee there's like 10 bazillion ways we can make that better. Now we could also talk about, you know, gene editing, you know, places where immunology starts touching areas outside of oncology. I think these are transformative areas. Those will absolutely happen. And I think there'll be a lot of excitement around them. But this other area of how you can kind of decouple the interface from like the rest of the infrastructure, to me, I think that will when I think of other types of human suffering, just like the clinicians suffering in their clinics, trying to take care of patients and like getting locked up in these EMRs. To me, that's just an obvious one that feels like. Sounds like it sounds like we heard from you what an entrepreneur should come have a conversation with yeah, you. Yeah, I'd love. By I, the way, I, I want it. Bessemer wants in on that okay, conversation. Okay, we'll co-invest on that one. <laughs> yeah, we'll, let's create it. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. Well, Krishna, honestly, I think one of the best parts of my job is getting to work with amazingly smart, talented people. You are clearly at the top of that list. So um, I think we're. I'm very thankful to have you join us. I know your entrepreneurs are thankful to work with you, and it's great to have a guy like this in the healthcare industry. That's what I'd it's say. It's the best um, for a person who kind of works with a number of your investments and interacts with you. I just so appreciate you taking time to chat with us and very envious of the companies that you're creating and the impact you're having on the healthcare system. So well, the, the keep it up. The is mutual, and, and thank you guys for doing this podcast. I think it's a great addition to the ecosystem. So hopefully we get to do it again, and, and uh, uh, thank you. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes, and if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, email the guys at steve at bvp.com or trevor at oxyandpartners.com. Yeah.